Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm clinical psychologist Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I tackle the all-too-popular topic of anxiety. To say that anxiety is common would be an understatement. Reed and I discuss the difference between run-of-the-mill nervousness uh, versus anxiety disorders. We explore different ways to think about anxiety, and we outline some strategies for coping with and resolving dysfunctional anxiety. Shameless self-promotion incoming. If you enjoy our podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This sends a hint to the algorithm-based AI overlords over at Apple that our podcast is worth recommending to other listeners. If you'd rather not leave it up to the robots, though, you could spread the word the old-fashioned way and share one of your favorite episodes with a friend that you think would like it. Reed and I can't elevate the consciousness of the human race without your help, so thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everybody, to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. I'm here with my esteemed colleague, Reed Robinson. How are you doing, Reed? Excellent. How about you, Steve? I'm also excellent. Uh, we are not in our normal recording place, but get used to it, folks. We're just trying to try different spots uh, as our life circumstances dictate. But <laughs> mm-hmm. today, I thought we could regale all of you with um, some thoughts about anxiety. Uh, anxiety is a painfully common emotional state in the human mind. In fact, I looked up the stat. World Health Organization estimates that, uh, or maybe it's not the WHO, some organization estimates that approximately 18% of U.S. adults will suffer from an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. That's like 40 million people. And that's an anxiety disorder, right? That's not Uh just the emotion anxiety or the, you know, the cognitive state anxiety. Um, So I think this is, will be incredibly relevant for our audience, both the lay people that listen to this podcast, but also, you know, the clinicians, the guides, the coaches, the professionals that listen to us. There was a psychedelic drug development company that reached out last week Mm -hmm. about a a psychedelic study coming down the pipeline for anxiety next year. And so we were querying our medical records of Cedar Clinics to see how many people had anxiety on the problem list in the medical record or Mm -hmm. generalized anxiety disorder. And it was thousands and thousands, like more than we expected. Um, But then when I thought about it, I said, that makes perfect sense. Look at something like, you know, anorexia nervosa or OCD or any of those, how much overlap in symptoms there is with anxiety and how much co-occurring even formal anxiety conditions there are. Right. Yeah. They call anxiety and depression, the the common cold of mental health symptoms, just how common they are. And like you said, Reed, there's a ton of overlap. It's a broad umbrella under which a lot of these conditions exist. Um, but anxiety is the, is the uh, common thing that knits them together. So when we say anxiety, when somebody says anxiety, um, what do we mean? What are we talking about, right? What is anxiety and what is an anxiety disorder? Yeah, because worrying is normal. Mm-hmm. Feeling tense, nervous, normal. These are adaptive signals from within the body to give us information about how to navigate life. But I like the qualifier in the diagnostic criteria of excessive worry and anxiety. Right. Yeah, and in our, in our DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, they define excessive as, you know, it's, 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 it, 
what is considered excessive is contextual, right? Contextual within your immediate culture, what's excessive in one culture might not be excessive in another. But they try to operationalize it in the manual and it's something like, you know, is it uh, functionally disabling? So does it make it difficult yep. for you to function in a variety of life areas like school or work or relationships? Or does it prevent you from uh, doing the things that you would otherwise want to do? Um, is it unreasonable by most people's standards? So do you get lots of comments from people in your life like, you know, you worry a lot or that doesn't mm -hmm. seem rational? Um, and is it lasting for, I think at least for, for generalized anxiety disorder, it's something like six months, more days than not, yeah. more often during the day than not. Yeah. And I think that functional impairment is key for most conditions, mm -hmm. right? Like, does it interfere with your life? Right. Um, yeah. So I'm thinking about like generalized anxiety disorder. It's really just, do you worry a lot about a lot of things? Or do you have this general sense of worry more often than not for at least six months? Um, and that, that time of at least six months is probably sort of arbitrary. Like a yeah. lot of the time indicators in the DSM, I'm sure there's some clinical and empirical research to, uh, that guides those decisions. But you know, this is just a group of humans who get together and decide these criteria. So <laughs> Probably a little arbitrary, but you know, if it is lasting months and months and it's, as we say, interfering with your functioning in major life areas, then you've got something that has, you know, grown beyond what we would, what we would consider to be normative fear, worry, and anxiety levels. Yeah. Yeah. Because I like to look back at where this came from. Like there's, there's stress, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and there's you stress like the good stress that's eu stress right yeah that motivates and drives us towards action inspired mm -hmm. action then there's distress where it's kind of the hot mess out of control um and either self-destructing or curl up in a ball right. uh kind of distress <laughs> yeah the first time i learned about the difference between distress and you stress was in school so a lot of school examples come to mind like you know, the, the you stress, let's say I'm preparing for a final exam. I need a certain amount of concern about what would happen if I don't do well on this exam to get my button gear, to motivate me to study. Because if I don't give a crap, I might not study. If I don't study, I might not do well on the test, right? Yeah. So it's got to matter enough to get my heart rate going enough to prepare, right? That's you stress. But distress in this example might be, uh, let's say I get sort of rumination over like a lot of what ifs related to this test. Well, you know, yeah. what, what if I fail? And if I fail, what does that mean about me? It means I'm a terrible student. And if I'm a terrible student, then you know, I'm never going to graduate. And if I don't graduate, right, the worry train starts to go down the tracks. Yeah, you can't have so much distress that your heart's beating so fast that it explodes or something. <laughs> but school's a good example. I remember looking back on it. Med school is a great example because... I remember the old adage that uh, there's nothing like a good deadline to motivate you. Right, right. <laughs> and as the exam would approach, I would find myself kicking it into high gear. It would be less relaxing, more studying, less slacking off, mm -hmm. more um, efficient studying. And the, the time I spent studying, it was dialed in. Right. Until you're having to pull an all-nighter and dozing off and it's just not productive. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I call that functional procrastination. And I think a lot of people, depending on your personality style, um, will use the time pressure created by procrastination to dial you in. Um, and there's certainly dysfunctional procrastination. Oh, yeah. You put things off so far that you can't adequately prepare. I had a colleague, um, this was in my 
internship cohort, my clinical residency in the Air Force, where she was the kind of person that did the opposite. She would do the final paper in the first week of the semester. Uh, it mm-hmm. blew my mind what this person could do. And she was very productive. Um, so she would use anxiety differently. It was like, I hate not having things done. So the way I deal with that is hit them immediately, mm-hmm. get them done. And then I can relax yeah. after that. Yeah. And that's a good qualifier because I did learn along the way that procrastination was not great for my nervous system, mm-hmm. right? It was, it was always better if I could find myself uh, a structured routine that would allow me to stay on top of it so that when that exam comes, I could just dial in for an hour or two mm-hmm. to do the final prep, relax, and then go in with my A game. Yeah. So this is making me think, Reed, of, of sort of one of the key things that delineate between functional anxiety, if you want to call it that, and dysfunctional anxiety. And that's, you know, does your worry, does your concern motivate action or does it motivate yeah. avoidance? Does it, is it an approach or is it a withdrawal action tendency related to the emotion? Yeah. Yeah, because that's one of the problems with, with anxiety and with difficult emotion is that we're, we're raised in such a way that they're conditioned out of us or we're not taught what to do with our emotions, especially the difficult ones. Right. And so they're feared, avoided, repressed, and, uh, and they spill out in other ways. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to go back to the procrastination example, if, if I had a, a, a paper, let's say, you know, a, a long essay I needed to write and I responded to that nervousness, that worry, like, Oh, I don't know where to start. I don't mm-hmm. know if I'll do poorly by this. I was going to say, uh, you know, going on my phone, but back then I didn't have, we didn't have smartphones. This was pre iPhone <laughs> back when I was yeah. in college. So just, you know, whatever, watching TV, going for, even if it was just going for a walk that would reduce my anxiety temporarily which is why it's avoidance is so reinforcing, right? You get the sort of yeah. immediate reduction in anxiety and mm-hmm. emotional distress, which as reinforcement principles dictate would increase the likelihood I would avoid in the future. But the problem is the paper's not done. So then, yeah. you know, with procrast- as procrastination goes, the closer I get to the deadline, the higher that anxiety is. And what I eventually taught myself is that if, if I just respond to that initial anxiety with, okay, just write the first sentence with an yeah. approach behavior, just open a Word document and name it essay, <laughs> like so, yeah. something really basic, really simple. Then I, if I can just get past that initial wall, that, that cloudy first step, exactly. Yeah. And it, cause it's, it's always the first step that at least for me, will reduce the anxiety enough. And I'm like, okay, this isn't as bad as I thought. And then it's almost euphoric. Like if I can get past that initial threshold, mm-hmm. um, but man, that's a hard habit to make. Yeah. And we see that with a number of uh, mental health struggles with our clients, like even in depression, this idea of behavioral activation, if you can figure out a way to get out of bed and do something, mm-hmm. then sometimes the positive feelings follow, mm-hmm. you know, very often. Especially if you can get yeah. momentum. Uh, when I was a teenager, my friends and I used to like to go to Lake Powell and jump off high cliffs into the water. Mm-hmm. Terrifying, right? I, I remember yep. my heart's kind of beating as I just think about it. Like I'm, I'm getting that, my palms are sweating a bit. Just, You're not just, even on the ledge right, right now. Scary stuff, right? So the way I would overcome my fear, for better or worse, this was actually a dangerous activity, was I would start 
from about 10 feet back where I couldn't see over the ledge. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't quite as scary. And then I would run (laughs) and get up enough momentum that I was unlikely to stop. Right. And I've seen, you know, videos of people doing that and then they kind of like skid to a stop and tumble off the (laughs) edge. It's it's not, not a good thing. So I would run and then just jump. So uh, mm-hmm. this this concept of building momentum yeah. into the thing that that makes you afraid has helped me, you know, get over other things that make me anxious in in my adult life. I did seriously injure myself one time, so it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't all end up, you know, roses, but yeah, so when we stop avoiding and kind of transform it into inspired action, let's say, it's a corrective experience that builds skill and confidence and makes it easier to do it the next time. Mm. I like that. Builds skill and confidence. I've often said that uh, confidence is built on a foundation of competence. Yeah. If it's, you're a lot more confident if you've got skill at what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So building skill and competence. So what are some things that we could be skilled at that would be generally applicable that would help us, with anxiety generally, do you think? Like what's helped you in your life, these skills you're referencing yeah. to overcome or at least address or conquer anxiety? I mean, for me, the number one thing has been the breath, mm. for sure. What's that Fritz Perls quote? It's uh, fear is just excitement without breath. Yeah, And, you know, it's an interesting way to look at it. Um, and I think there's something to it that... Uh, you know, if we don't let the breath move through us, you know, if we hold our breath, we're kind of tensing up, we're not moving energy, we're not uh, going with the flow of that, that uh, energetic situation mm-hmm. towards, towards action. And it's, it's like that pressure cooker analogy, it's going to build up inside us and spill out in other ways or right. be um, counterproductive. Well, you even said a moment ago, inspired action, right? Yeah. And you have that, that root words in, mm-hmm. to inspire, right? True. Respiration, True. respiration. So it's uh, action with breath. So, you know, you've, we've mentioned on the podcast a bunch of times and you've talked about your, your work um, in yoga, mm-hmm. right? And you're a yoga teacher, you're a trained yoga teacher. Um, so what are the ways that you have been able to both personally and maybe with your clients and patients use breath to help people? Yeah. So for one, the the breath is a window into our nervous system. Like it shows us our inner world in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then the nice thing about this diaphragm that we've got that is both, it's a rare kind of part of the body that's either under conscious or subconscious control. Right. Like if you forget to breathe, don't worry. It'll, it's got your back. It'll keep breathing. But if you want to take control and, uh, slow or speed up your breathing you certainly can Um, it's a little harder to do that with your like the peristaltic waves of your gi tract or Mm -hmm. your you know your heart you could do it but um it takes a lot more training to to exert that kind of influence on it but so the breath is a window into the nervous system the breath is also the nervous system's remote control Mm -hmm. in a way Um, calm the breath calm the mind Calm the mind, calm the body. Yeah. Um, so the the biggest tool for me is uh, either a mindful moment, sometimes I'll call it, or like a 16-second pattern interrupt. If I'm caught up in a rumination loop and um, that 16-second pattern interrupt is just 
Inhale for four seconds, hold. Exhale for four seconds, hold for four seconds. And there you've got this kind of the box, box breath yeah. uh, that just brings your nervous system back into more of a centered place. Yeah. yeah. I've done that with clients who come in and they're buzzing with anxiety. And before we get to talking about what's going on in their week, what's on their mind in, in the immediate moment, I usually just do two minutes maybe of box mm-hmm. breathing. Yeah. Even just three breaths, frankly. I think it was some Japanese researcher that said six breaths was the minimum. But after six, you know, box breaths like you just described, um, you can you can affect your nervous system, yeah. nervous system directly. So you've got, like we were talking about with skill and confidence, you've got to practice when not in the most distressing place. You've mm-hmm. got to practice in those gaps, like we've said before, or in right. this, in the like the mild to moderate um, situations um, because you will kind of fall to that level of your skill and confidence mm-hmm. when under a lot of pressure. Right. The um, time to prepare for war is uh, during peacetime, not when the enemy's at the gates. Yeah. Right. So uh, it was, it was kind of fun at uh, Thanksgiving dinner at my parents' house. My mother, there's a bunch of my nieces and nephews there. It was kind of a rowdy a rowdy, uh, fun, but rowdy situation. And my, my mother wanted to move into kind of a little bit of a discussion or, or sharing, but everyone was wound up. So she asked, uh, one of my brothers to guide us in a little brief meditation. Mm. And it was amazing to see what happened. Uh, um, when, uh, he did this presence process of, I am here now mantra, a few rounds of it. And then everyone's just breathing together boom, like, like that chaos turned to calm. And then we're all just there in the moment. Isn't that wild? It's just, just the breathing, just focusing on the breathing Mm -hmm. and anchors you to the present moment. Because a lot of what makes us anxious, we should maybe should have said this at the beginning, that anxiety is often a concern or obsession with, or, or uh, inaccurate appraisal of threats that have yet to come. Yeah. Right. We're thinking, we're projecting our minds into the future. There's this what if obsession. What if something bad happens? What if uh, I get mocked? You know, they're all going to laugh at me. You know, pick your context, but it's usually a what if type worry. And so the breath is a really good tool, and there are others that can anchor you to the present moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, unless there is an immediate threat in that present moment, then there's not much to worry about if you're just breathing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, that's a really good point. The um, the evolutionary backdrop of this this stuff is really helpful as a reminder to me too. Is uh, like we our brains and our bodies and our nervous systems were wired a long time ago, mm-hmm. back when, and sure they've evolved since. But back ten thousand years ago, these evolved for survival of the fittest for protective reasons because a saber-toothed tiger might jump out of the bushes and attack you. Right. So we have these threats that existed much more back then, um, like for our survival. Mm-hmm. But, but these days, those things can kind of go haywire because they're still wired into our brains. But, but we might get uh, these like amygdala uh, alarm bells triggered accidentally from things that aren't actual dangers and we might get stuck in that fight or flight or fearful loop uh when it's not even necessary and we do need those pattern interrupters or those ways of uh of 
like calming the nervous system when we don't need to be in that protective survival mode. Right. Yeah. I love that evolutionary description of anxiety. And it applies not only to, you know, threats of physical violence from a saber toothed tiger, but it also applies to your social anxiety too. Right. People get really anxious at the idea of being excluded or rejected. Right. Yeah. Of not want being uh, unseen or unwanted. And, you know, from an evolutionary lens, that was, that was really important too. Back when we were hunter gatherer, tribal, um, wanderers on the plains or in the mountains or, you know, pick your geographical location. If you were rejected by your small group, Mm -hmm. uh, whom you depended on for safety, you know, protection from others, uh, for food, for shelter and, you know, for love and, and connection and all that stuff, you could literally die, right? If you're yep. kicked out of the tribe, you uh, you could literally die. So we're hardwired to give a crap about what people think of us. You know, there's this, mm-hmm. this idea that we shouldn't care at all about what others think of us. Well, I don't know about that. I, I think it's okay to, to care, maybe not attach your complete worth to what other people care about you. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of trend of being... Uh, you know, self-loving and that's all I need. But no, mm-hmm. there's evolutionary reasons why we have social anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And that t- today turns into something like, uh, well, our top three fears would be fear of death, mm-hmm. fear of other people. Uh, and then the more modern addition to that is fear of our own minds or yeah. what we get stuck in or trick ourselves into thinking. Yeah. Right. So as mental health professionals, Reed, you and I try to intervene at, at a variety of levels uh, at the, of the human organism to help with this. Yeah. So you mentioning fear of your own mind just made me think of this because, you know, I was, um, a lot of the therapy I've done, I don't do it as much now, was cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Yeah. And one level we intervene at with CBT is the level of thoughts, cognitions, mm-hmm. that's the name, and the stories that we tell ourselves in our head. And from the CBT perspective, there are these ways of thinking or these patterns of thinking we call cognitive distortions. Distortions meaning we're distorting reality through this lens of a belief. So in the case of anxiety, it might be I'm catastrophizing. I'm thinking about something that might happen um, and I'm making it a catastrophe in my mind when it probably won't be. Mm -hmm. It's not even likely to happen, right? It's an incorrect appraisal of probability. Yeah. This is, I'm definitely going to mess up or they're definitely going to hate me or something. I'm definitely going to get in a car accident. These are low likelihood events, even if they are likely mm-hmm. at all. And they're probably not going to be as bad as you think they are. Yeah. Isn't it fascinating how we could hear from five people in a row that you're doing an awesome job or that talk you gave was excellent. Um, and then one comment that makes us question it or, mm-hmm. Or even without that one comment, we can just be stuck in this thought that we did a terrible job and not hear those other things. And those negativity is is more salient to the, the quote-unquote normal mind too, right? It's not just for those of us that struggle with diagnosing oh, yeah. <laughs> illnesses, but it's, it's a feature of human consciousness that negativity is more salient than positivity for us. And we are prediction machines mm-hmm. like... Uh, like you were talking about in the CBT example of, you know, our nervous systems, our default mode networks are wired to anticipate the future because of the risks of threats traditionally and today. Right. And um, so we have these reflex kind of 
pathways firing in response to different things. And I think the work lies in this uh, kind of awareness, creating a little space between signal and response where we can, you know, feel into what's going on, assess the situation, then decide how to act. Yeah. Exactly. Awareness. So breathing helps you drop into awareness. Mm-hmm. Um Getting in touch with physical sensations. Yep. A lot of your five senses that are in the present moment. Embodiment, so, yeah. So sometimes I'll have clients, you know, I'll, I'll take them through a progressive muscle relaxation exercise where they mm-hmm. just progressively tense and re- and relax uh, muscle groups starting at the top of the head all the way to the feet um, to help them get acquainted with their body in the moment. And then we'll pick a uh, one of those groups. Usually I'll do the fists or the feet to really uh, to use when they're, and they're anxious. So there's mm-hmm. find your feet or clench your, clench your uh-huh. fists. Um, if you want to, to really go the next level, you can hold ice cubes or put mm-hmm. your hands in warm or cold water. You know, something to really take your mind out of this projection prediction machine that you talked about into the present moment yeah. um, to shock the system a bit. Yeah, that's the, along the same lines as the breath, the extension of that into using the whole body as a resource for grounding represencing i mean that's where our anxiety resources lie in the body mm-hmm. right we're not going to solve it with just our minds in general <laughs> yeah right so i like to like you were saying have um well do it myself and also when working with clients uh really feel into where is the anxiety in your body? Where do we feel it most? And it's not an easy task sometimes. And uh, what, yeah, what is it like? You know, just getting to know how it shows up for you so you can be on the lookout. And then, yeah, we can, we can add a thinking component of trace it back. Oh, I have this sensation. That's anxiety. That's familiar. Uh, and then we can... Um, you know, do some breathing, um, you know, bring a little awareness to it. And in that spirit of awareness, where did it come from? Oh, I was, uh, honked at while driving over here and my heart's still beating a little bit. You know, it might be, Oh, I can, uh, that'll subside any minute now. No problem. That is so important. Reed. Like I can't tell you how many of my clients or even myself, um, that I've had the experience, like, let's say I've got a client, you know, and they come in and they're saying they're anxious or they're just saying they're stressed. They feel like crap. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, what are you feeling? I don't know. I feel like crap. No, but what, what emotion are you experiencing? What are you talking about? Like, I guess I feel stressed. And yeah. it's not until we, you know, as you just described, have them pay attention to their body. And well, I guess I'm feeling like some tightness in my throat or there's a breathlessness or a buzzing in my sternum. Like, okay, that right there that's anxiety yeah oh really and i can you can you can address that directly instead of Mm -hmm. the confusing things that are up in my mind and like you referenced earlier sometimes when you can address the breath or the body first the mind will follow suit Mm -hmm. sometimes uh i'll have people do this exercise or practice and i hesitate to even admit this because it's probably not the wisest homework assignment (laughs) but when working with especially students or uh trainees I'll have them, uh, I'll challenge them to on their way home when driving home, when they're at a stoplight and someone's behind them and they're at a red light, wait, let it turn green, Mm. don't move, (laughs) count to 10 Mm. and feel into your body and hopefully they're honking behind you because you want that and, and then see what happens to your nervous system. 
And then make sure you apologize and don't cause any accidents and, you know, go on your merry way. Sorry, my doctor told me to do that. (laughs) Yeah. So I I keep hoping that doesn't come back to bite me in someone's uh, road rage incident or something. Well, (laughs) it's a great example of a a category of interventions that we call exposure. Yeah. And and it's the most effective. I I probably can say that with confidence. If not, I would say one of the most effective ways to address anxiety, right? Because it's the fear of something that hasn't, isn't happening or hasn't happened yet. So if you just make it happen now, you can show your nervous system that it's not as bad as you thought. So mm-hmm. this is especially helpful with phobias, especially helpful with social anxiety. Um, but uh, when I was an Air Force psychologist treating a lot of PTSD, combat-related PTSD, um, I got uh, official fancy training in a, in a therapy approach called prolonged exposure, mm-hmm. PE, for, oh, yeah. for PTSD. and the central tenet of that is, you know, you get a sense for what they're avoiding that's keeping their PTS, PTSD symptoms fresh and yeah. powerful. And you pick something that on the scale of, you know, zero to 10 on their suds, their subjective units of distress, isn't so bad that it's going to floor them somewhere in the middle. And then you organize a exposure activity around it. So oh. for some of these folks who had, you know, really serious, serious PTSD, they're actually avoiding the triggering of the memories of their trauma. So we would pick for exposure Mm -hmm. the memory itself. So I'd have them record themselves uh, telling me their story. Yeah. I was on a turret and I was mowing down all these Afghani farmers. And I just, Hmm. you know, because we thought they had guns and they were rakes or whatever. This was one story in particular. And and this guy, when he would initially tell me this story, just (sighs) hyperventilating, he's crying. Mm -hmm. So I had him record himself telling me this story. And his homework was to listen to it. Listen to his story you know, two or three times a day while he's re- trying to regulate his breathing to habituate to the story. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about the, the, the content. We're not trying to, to desensitize him in a callous way mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter what happened to him. Of course it mattered. There's lots of other work that goes around this. Yeah. But just to get the central nervous system activation into a workable place. And for this guy in particular, this exposure strategy worked wonders. He could finally go to places that he wasn't willing to go to in therapy because he just habituated himself to the content of his story. Yeah, that's, that's uh, fascinating. I think it shows up in a lot more ways in our interventions than we even realize. Yeah. Like that um, skill and confidence comes from working on exposure. The refeeding that you do in eating disorder recovery work, like facing your fears of say eating and weight gain, that's exposure therapy, right? right? Or when we work with uh, even transcranial magnetic stimulation, one of our tools in clinic, Mm -hmm. uh, the OCD protocol for that um, involves triggering a certain level on a zero to 10 scale of distress and then starting the treatment, uh, you know, when that's on board. So you have something to really target. Um, Did you ever use VR in your exposure therapy? We did. Yeah. Well, we had this really fancy VR. I mean, it's fancy for the time. This was, you know, a decade ago. But uh, this VR rig where not only was it a headset with crappy graphics, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Call of Duty 1 graphics or whatever, but they sat in this chair and they had a a mock AR-15 in their hands. They had a rifle in their hands. And the chair was on a subwoofer. And the particular VR that we were using was a... Uh, convoy, because that's for a lot of our guys mm-hmm. and gals. It was, uh, you know, V beds. It was IEDs. It was explosions on convoy that were the content of a lot of their trauma. So, so uh, 
it's this convoy scenario. They've got the, the subwoofer mimicking, you know, the vibrations of mm-hmm. the vehicle. And then they would have smells. So we had this aroma machine that wow. we could put different uh, essential oils. There was like blood. There was, hmm. uh, there was a car tire on fire. It was really specific smells. There was wow. some of the, the spices they would use over there for their food. There was body odor, lots of different. Because yeah. we wanted to recreate the memory as accurately, evoke as much of the distress as possible so you can really habituate to it at a high level. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't use that technology as much as we probably could have. It's pretty classic government <laughs> contract stuff, you know, pay a lot for something and never use it. But yeah, now with VR technology, my, one of my, my, all my kids have this Oculus Quest 2 and mm-hmm. the, the graphics are much better. The sound's much better. Technology's better. And there's, there are good mental health mental health apps. And there's yeah. companies, we've had some demos uh, at clinic yeah. yep. that are that are, have specific headsets and software for mental health treatment. Yeah, especially good for phobias yeah. and trauma, of course, you mentioned. That's, uh, that's powerful, intense work, <laughs> it sounds like. Yeah, when we first got the headset, there was, I forget what the name of the game, but um, it was this plank that you'd walk out on and you actually get a plank. Like I bought a two by six and put it on the floor <laughs> and you enter the dimensions into the game and you walk out on it and you know, the scene is you're, you're on this, above this, this skyscraper walking mm-hmm. out on a plank. Yep. And then you could set it up so that there was this birthday cake at the end of the plank that would explode with spiders. You could do all kinds of things. My kids just loved yeah. Freaking out their friends, but yeah, we have one as well. And it's so funny to see people put on the Oculus for the first time and then go into one of those situations, like the edge of a roof of a tall building right. or a roller coaster ride, because it feels so real. And they almost like reach for something because mm-hmm. you feel like you're going to fall off a building. <laughs> there are hilarious videos online of people because you can jump. Like that's one of the objectives <laughs> is get to the end, conquer your fears and jump. And there are people like jumping into walls <laughs> or, or <laughs> jumping into their television sets. Cause uh, you do, you kind of suspend disbelief and forget that you're in a VR headset. Yeah. yeah so exposure therapy, mm-hmm. um, moving towards, the difficult emotions moving through that experience, right. uh, um, building skill and confidence, uh, transforming it into another emotional state, into expire, inspired action. Um, what else? This would be a good place to probably cite the super exciting research on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Yeah. And what we think is happening in the brain, and you can correct me if I get this wrong, Reed, but it's like the perfect PTSD medicine for PTSD for, you know, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, because it, it quiets down the amygdala that you referenced, this fear center of the brain. And then it increases activity in the prefrontal cortex, this sense making planning, you know, executive control center of the brain. And then also increases connectivity of the prefrontal cortex with hippocampal regions of the brain where a lot of memory is stored and processed. So Mm -hmm. you've got memories that you're avoiding as somebody with post-traumatic stress disorder that now one of the reasons you're avoiding them is because they provoke anxiety and fear. So we're turning that dial down. We're giving you better access to your memories and we're beefing up the part of your brain that helps you make sense of stuff. So an incredible medicine when you're dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think the phase two or phase three trials are showing something like 70% reduction or no, uh, 70% of participants no longer met diagnostic criteria for PTSD at like six month follow up or something. Which is striking and worth, uh, worth spending a moment just to be,
be in awe of because treatment as usual doesn't do that. No, this is, I mean, the closest thing we have to a cure for a mental illness yeah. that exists. Yeah, not only is MDMA um, being evaluated as this first medicine plus therapy, like first psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy intervention evaluated by the FDA for potential approval, but uh, it's also it also represents this curative strategy the curative approach that isn't just treating symptoms Mm -hmm. like like i've done a lot of ptsd studies we have two of them going on in clinic right now that are not um psychedelic studies and they're not root cause focused studies right and because that's all we've had so far so that prompts a question in my mind for you reed you're a psychiatrist and you know psychiatrists primarily at least nowadays treat mental illnesses with medicines mm-hmm. and medicines. I mean, from my, my perspective as a psychologist, right? Not an MD, not a prescriber of medicines that a lot of times they're, they're super important and great for knocking sy- symptoms down to a manageable level so that a person can live life. Um, so that a person cannot uh, harm themselves. Right. Yeah. But something like a benzodiazepine, for example, that's kind of a tranquilizer. Um, if not part of a really thoughtful treatment plan, it can maybe make things worse because it's promoting avoidance. Yeah. What do you think of this? Am I off base? No, I agree. And it's it's important to look at both sides of this coin yeah. because I'll give you an example. Uh, early in my career, I had uh, I started working with a group in Utah called Utah Health and Human Rights, working with torture victim refugees and human trafficking subjects. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it was such meaningful work. It was uh, some of the work that's shook me to the core more than anything. Like I remember uh, hearing stories from uh, torture victims who were refugees here living in Utah and hearing the stories that, you know, I won't even try to repeat because yeah. they were yeah. they were just uh, kind of heart-wrenching. And and the way it showed up in their lives was some of them weren't able to sleep uh, more than, you know, a fitful couple of hours a night for years. Right. And so they'd show up where, like, it's hard it's hard to uh, accomplish much in your life or take care of even the necessities when it, you have that level of, of anxiety and PTSD symptomatology on board. Right. And so those were situations where... Um, yes, there was, uh, there was so much power in the safe retelling of it in the narrative in the, you know, exposure. We didn't have these V elaborate VR setups, but like they were not like ready for that. We had to get them there with, uh, like all sorts of kind of mindfulness and body based yoga type training and, um, just, community support and talk therapy over um, long periods of time. And uh, one of the roles I, I played in there was to figure out that balanced judic- judicious use of meds to help them get, help them start doing the work. Right. Like if you haven't slept uh, a restful night in a year, um, you probably need to sleep. Right. <laughs> and right. so that's where, um, there is a risk to that for sure. And, uh, and I think of it every time I'm even tempted to give a sedative hypnotic for sleep or a benzodiazepine to 
tone down anxiety symptoms. Um, and I just make sure if I ever get those out that, um, it's with an end date. It's with the purpose of we're going to get you from here to there. Mm -hmm. And that in my mind is how they're meant to be used. But there is this huge risk in our frazzled, busy society to turn to those as a more permanent solution of like an easy way to sleep or numb out some of these very difficult symptoms. Um, and sometimes it does take time. Sometimes it's not just a two-week course you need, yeah. right? Um, but uh, but that's how I approach them. It's a really a really important point. Yeah, yeah. and you know, so many of us are on, <clears throat> you know, an SSRI for depression, anxiety, you know, medium dose for years and years. It works for us. The side effects aren't that bad, uh, and there's zero shame in taking that medicine. I just like to have these conversations because. I think there needs to be a balance yeah. between, hey, what you're dealing with is an illness. It's no different than brain cancer. We need to treat it like an illness, which means treating it with medicine. So there's that approach that I think uh -huh. helps reduce stigma. But I think we also don't want to get to the point where we're just sort of medicating away what could be just a challenge, uh -huh. not just, but a challenge that we can overcome with the right kind of support yeah. and upon which you could build a lot of strength. And I think it's it's our responsibility as clinicians to challenge that with our clients in, in the right way, in a compassionate way, to challenge them to um, taper off meds when appropriate or yeah. to do more and more of that uh, psychotherapeutic work, that exposure work, that... Uh, root cause work, um, that talking cure work. Um, and to be honest, all of this, while I have strong feelings about um, not being too judgmental or extreme on either side of the yeah. equation, I also, um, this whole um, numbing out the symptoms approach we're so prone to in the Western world, that's what brought me to psychedelic medicine research yeah. and, and clinical work because, you know, how... Like exciting is it to have something like MDMA assisted psychotherapy and those results of, you know, potentially curative interventions without even having to take a daily pill yeah. or look at psilocybin for depression or end of life anxiety. We're talking about one, two, three doses of a medicine with a bunch of therapy uh, resulting in lasting change. I mean, that's exciting. Yeah. yeah. And the with a bunch of therapy is to me what really sets these things apart from Prozac or a Benzo. Yeah. People are really excited when they read a New York Times article that says psilocybin is the new Prozac. It's not the new Prozac. This is, this is going to be a different kind of approach to mental health treatment than you go to your primary care doc because you're sad and they give you an SSRI. Mm -hmm. this, this is a medicine that can show you your death that can show you the face of God, that can take you on a tour of all your insecurities. And, you know, talk about exposure therapy. Eat three grams of mushrooms in silent darkness, or was it five grams? Five, five dried grams. Five dried grams. Um, you're going to need therapeutic support, but we think, <laughs> to, to build on what was scaled back and shown to you. Yeah. Right? We have people go into the jungle to do ayahuasca, and they're having transformative experiences, and a lot of them returning to the to the same bullshit that made them suffer in about a week. And then they go back and mm -hmm. you had people treating psychedelic experiences 
like their, you know, their daily dose of an antidepressant. This is a different approach to mental health, which is good. We've, yeah. we call this psych, this podcast psychedelic therapy frontiers because it really is some uncharted territory that we're at the precipice mm. of. So, you know, uh, buckle up for a change. We hope in the way we offer mental health treatment, not a complete 180. We're not, you know, throwing mm-hmm. the baby out with the bathwater, but, um, yeah, I think it's going to be different. Yeah. Because, um, there's this idea that we talk about a lot that you've got to feel it to heal it mm-hmm. or, uh, the only way out is through. And I do believe that. And it's also, sometimes you feel worse before you feel better. Yeah. And, um, there's this other layer to it that the only thing worse than um, feeling a painful feeling is not feeling it through to completion and having mm-hmm. to deal with the consequences of that avoidance. Um, and so that's, uh, that's the work we're talking about is uh, take, helping people go through that process, which can be really difficult, and it's not to be taken lightly. Like the MDMA work you were talking about, uh, two or three doses of MDMA are paired with over 40 hours of therapy to get to that 67 plus percent, um, cure rate or, uh, no longer meeting criteria for PTSD, even six plus months later. Yeah. And, you know, forgive the soapbox, but the reason I (laughs) hopped on it was because I get a lot of friends, clients, colleagues who see these headlines and, you know, they ask me, where can I get me some of that psilocybin stuff? And I can tell that they're bringing with them that assumption. Maybe they didn't read the mm-hmm. article and just saw the headline, but it's like, oh, I heard, I heard magic mushrooms can cure my depression. Where can I get that? And I think we need to emphasize as we, be, you know, cause we're advocates for this approach that it does include a lot of work. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> we'll read anything else that, um, do you think might be, I mean, there's the anxiety is a huge topic. We could, we could talk for hours, but, uh, yeah, maybe we can dive in deeper another time and get into things like, uh, like polyvagal theory mm-hmm. and some of the, um, somatic experiencing and body-based approaches for, you know, practically addressing these things because it is a big, big deal these days, especially since the pandemic that's like magnified it for all of us for a number of probably obvious reasons. Isolation, more time online, you know, there's lots of reasons. I think, I mean, just the terror of a global pandemic (laughs) (laughs) and more time to sit with ourselves and our, and our monkey minds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we'll have to do a round two, three, four, five on (laughs) anxiety and, Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Reed. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening, folks. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again.
Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.